thanks for being here, right? And I am glad to be, I'm really grateful to be with our church this Sunday morning to gather around worship. What a sweet time just to kind of refocus our hearts and um, to hear what God has to say to us this morning. Before we dive into the message, um, I wanted to bring some uh, holiday cheer, not holiday cheer, I wanted to bring some cheer to our community um, with uh, a little giveaway. So who doesn't like some giveaways? And so as you guys know, we have this uh, I2RR event that we're hosting at the end of this month called the Invitation to Racial Righteousness. And uh, I want to encourage you to register by March 15th and save yourself five bucks. After that, there's a late fee that gets imposed. Um, But this event is really meant to help equip our community to grow in the areas of faith, um, our own ethnic journeys, and what it looks like to enter into the fray, right? Into these very highly charged conversations in our society and be people of peace. And so what we, this weekend looks like is um, teaching, equipping, they will be safe spaces of conversation where we're able to process our story and learn together, right, with people who have different perspectives. And that kind of thing is very rare these days, right? It's very rare to find spaces that are safe to talk about this stuff. And this is what uh, we are trying to do at Access, and this is what we're trying to do with I2RR. Now, um, the fun part. So if you register today, the first person who shows me their registration today, uh, after service, don't interrupt me during the message, after service, I'm going to give you this book. This is actually written by one of our speakers, Dominique Gilliard. Uh, so this is an award-winning book that he wrote last year. Uh, and if you register today and show me registration after service, come find me. You will get this book. Uh, but then I was also thinking about, you know, you might be thinking, but that's not fair. I registered early, and I was like a, you know, I was like a good faithful registrant. So uh, I haven't figured out a way how to do that, but I will randomly choose of those of you guys who registered, you know, before today uh, to win also a copy of a book. So I will contact you via email if you're the lucky recipient of this. Okay, so uh, that's that. Register by March 15th. Um, I wanted to tell you what I was hoping to do today. I'm going to give a message um, uh, a little bit shorter than I usually do, and that's with the intent of giving us some space at the end of the service uh, to take some time to pray as a community. Uh, I, I was just thinking, in light of everything that's going on, man, we really need to pray. We need to gather together and come before the throne of God's grace. In fact, it was funny. Um, just a little side note. My uh, primary care doctor, I told him, I was like, man, I'm not feeling well. He knows I'm a pastor. And he actually sent me this note. He's like, man, I pray for you that he gave me, he <laughs> prescribed me some cough medicine. And then he said, you know, I pray for you that you would speak with power and from God's throne of grace. You know, so obviously he's a Christian too. Um, and I was just thinking, man, yeah, we need to come before God's throne of grace in this, in this kind of wacky time, right? So let's do that now and we'll do that again together as a community at the end of this worship gathering. Let's pray together. Lord, um, we come to you humbly. We come to you dependently. Um, we come to you with assurance that you are here with us. Thank you for giving us your spirit that um, guides us through all the just the, the kind of the crazy seasons of our lives and of this world. And we want to draw near to you this morning. And I pray that you would speak to us as a community, to your church. 
to us um, who are either living with fear or living with people, surrounded by people who are living in fear, and just speak to us about um, who you are and who we truly are, God. May we, may we truly be um, representatives of your peace, God, and your presence, and your provision to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so <clears throat> our church has been leaning in to the book of Acts over the last several months. And we've been watching and learning as God's spirit took this message, right? This very simple message that Christ is Lord. And as that message spread from place to place, to place people believed, unlikely people, and it was forming this new community, a new humanity. And we saw how this message reordered people's allegiances, right? As people were confronted with this kind of claim that Christ, Christ, not Caesar, not money, not whatever you might think of, is Lord. Worship and follow him first. And last week we saw how uh, it was uh, conversational bridges that um, allowed people, different people, to gain access to a connection with God. Well, today, our narrative takes us from the city of Athens to the city of Corinth, where uh, Paul and his companions actually stay for over a year. Now, um, Acts is like one of my favorite books of the Bible. I love this story. I'm fairly familiar with, you know, the storyline and the different things that happen. But it's interesting because in preparation for each of these messages, I, I'm, I'm never really sure like what from the text is going to be like the thing that we need to hear, right? And as I was reading uh, Acts chapter 18, our text this morning, I was like, man, this is actually very timely. I was surprised by how timely and applicable I think the message of Acts 18 is for our church, our society, our world during this time. So yeah, let's, let's read it um, together and let's... Let's hear what the Lord has to say to us. So this is Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. I just want to make a couple quick comments about this first part of the narrative. First, uh, the emperor uh, Claudius. All right, that's, that's his mug. <laughs> that's the statue of the emperor of Rome from 41 to 54 AD. So it, it turns out in this passage, it alludes to the fact that the emperor actually expelled the entire Jewish community from the city of Rome. Now, this had actually happened before under other emperors, other, under other Roman emperors, and historians conjecture, they're not totally sure the reason, but one of the top reasons uh, could be that as Jesus came onto the scene and the Jewish community was debating who is this Jesus, right, it started to create some... Uh, disturbance, some unrest. We've seen that in each of the chapters of Acts. And Claudius Emperor's like, I don't want any of that in my city, so you guys just get out of here. And so he expels all the Jewish people. 
And this is the circumstance in which leads to Priscilla and Aquila leaving Rome to come to Corinth. Uh, a second thing I just want to mention uh, from the text is you'll see this, right? Um, among Christians today, sometimes you hear Christians who are going overseas as missionaries say that they are going to go as uh, tent makers. Well, that phrase actually comes from this. And when uh, a Christian says, I'm going there as a tent maker, what they mean is that they're going to move to uh, another place, another country, another city, and then they're going to find an occupation within the local economy, right? So they might establish a business or they might pick up a trade in that society and they'll just, they'll just work. Um, and this actually comes from this, this verse. Paul's profession, his actual job was that he literally made tents. And apparently Priscilla and Aquila did too. Uh, the phrase tent maker at this time also in, was inclusive of leather workers, right? And so very clearly what we see is that Paul had a job that he worked with his hands, like an artisanal trade. And I just think that's kind of cool because it provides like another layer to who this man Paul is that we've been reading so much about. Paul was this highly educated, very pious Jewish person. He became this mighty church planter, and he was a work-with-his-hands kind of guy that was transformed by the Lord Jesus, right? So that's, that's who he is. That kind of made me think a little bit about all the random jobs that I've had over my lifetime. So I, I kind of wrote them down, and these are some of the jobs I've had. I, I've been a vine dresser, so I actually worked in a vineyard uh, pruning vines uh, for a summer. That was pretty cool. This was in Ohio. I've been a telemarketer. That was not so cool. Um, I was a restaurant host for a week. I was not very good at that, at like figuring out which tables should be assigned to people, so I had to quit that uh, very promptly. I was actually a, a Cutco, you know, the knives, the really fancy knives uh, with the thermal resin handles. I was actually a, a Cutco salesperson for a summer. I made a lot of money, uh, but they didn't call us salespeople. They called us vector interns, all right? So it was very misleading, but um, I was a tutor. Uh, I've tutored a lot. I've been a class grader. I've been an intervarsity staff college minister, and I've been a youth director and a minister and a pastor. So I, I, I mentioned this uh, because... Uh, some of us, uh, especially those of us maybe from uh, Asian cultures, grew up in a culture where like, uh, there, was, there was a very diverse range of three, three, three acceptable occupations, wasn't there? You could grow up to be a doctor, uh, uh, an engineer, or a lawyer. That was like, those are kind of your three choices, right? And I was thinking about this, you know, as we seek to become a church uh, that unites diverse people, that will certainly mean embracing a wider range of occupations and skill sets. Uh, it will look, it'll look like a lot of different things. It'll look like tent makers and leather makers and homemakers, which incidentally is the name of the most expensive Cutco cut, cut set that we sold. It was called the Homemaker. How terrible a name is that, is that, right? I never sold one of those. So the third thing, all right, that's all kind of set up. The third thing is this. Notice again where does Paul share the message? We've been talking about this last couple. Where does he go? He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue. And what is his message? He is testifying and trying to persuade and teach people, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that was promised. And so we see that Paul's pretty consistent. He's like a creature of habit. Every city he goes, he goes to the synagogue, and he's teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. But... All that is about to change in a brief moment. 
So, we're starting at verse 6. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Right? Your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So once again, Paul faces resistance. We've seen this in every place he went. It's nothing new. He would face resistance. And as he's facing this resistance, it's like the very people that Paul loves so much. You have to remember, Paul's a Jewish person. He loves his people. He desperately wants them to understand and see what he has seen, right? That this Jesus is the Messiah, that this Jesus that they crucified is the Messiah. So he's, he's like heartbroken over them. And yet he gets to a point where he's just like, I can't take it anymore. I've had enough of them, you know? Like they're just so stubborn and they won't listen. And even though I'm telling them this, this out of love, they just want to like abuse me and kill me. And so he's finally like, enough, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out of here. Now, um, have you ever said something out of angry anger that you maybe didn't really mean, right? Like you later kind of was like, ah, oh, it, it was kind of in the heat of the moment. There is some suggestion that um, this is kind of where Paul's at because later in verse 19, it actually says he goes back to the synagogue again, all right? So there's some indication that maybe he was just really furious at this point. Um, and, you know, he just said something he didn't mean. I've actually watched a couple episodes of Love is Blind. Um, I, I know a lot of you guys, like, love that show. And I think that there's a lot of that going on, right? People in the heat of the moment just saying stuff that they don't really mean. And then, you know, later on, they're like, uh, they have to clean up the mess, right? So it's a little bit of, of what is happening. But either way, Paul is very frustrated. He leaves the synagogue, and then he goes to the house of a Gentile. And this is picking up at verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper, worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. And so while some people attack and resist the message that Paul is proclaiming, others, they believe and they are baptized. Um, so quick aside, if you have believed in Jesus and you have not yet been baptized, I want to encourage you to take that step. There's, there's no like, right time for that. If you believe, get baptized, right? That's the way to respond to Jesus' life-saving grace in your life. Right? And this is the pattern in the, in the New Testament as well. They believed and they were baptized. And so there are some who believe and are baptized. Um, but then there are also those who resist. And that contrasting response is familiar. Right? It gets played out in every place that Paul had proclaimed the gospel. This is nothing new. But in this story, something else is at play. We get the sense that Paul is not at peace with what is going on. Because God speaks to him in another vision. Earlier, Paul had erupted like in this burst of anger. You know, I'm done with you. Your blood be on your head. Uh, it's kind of like when I tell my kids, I'm, 
I'm like, I'm so tired of telling you guys to like stop running in the road without looking both ways. If you want to get hit by a car, go ahead. It's kind of like that. I'm just like just fed up by saying this. Uh, but notice that God doesn't address Paul's anger or frustration, doesn't he? He doesn't say, hey, you know, Paul, don't be so angry. Instead, what does God address? He addresses his fear. Because beneath the anger, beneath the frustration, those are all really symptomatic of something far more basic, far more fundamental, and far more common to the human experience. It's fear. Paul was afraid. As a parent, my worst fear is that something bad would happen to my children. And so when I yell at them like that, yeah, I am angry at them and I am angry for them because I don't want to see them get hurt. What do you think Paul was afraid of? Um, Verse 10 of this text certainly suggests that Paul was afraid of what would happen to him if he kept on preaching, you know. Would he be beaten again? Would he be imprisoned? Would he be killed? These were real things that he experienced. And naturally, these are not, Paul wasn't like a, you know, a glutton for punishment. These hurt him. And so there's a natural fear. I don't want that to happen again. These were all real threats that Paul faced on a regular basis. And so I think Paul did wonder, am I safe? You know, am I actually even safe in this place? And yet he knew that this is what he was called to. Perhaps Paul was also afraid that his people, the people whom he loved so much, wouldn't receive the gospel message, that they wouldn't repent, that they wouldn't turn. And he was afraid that they would perish. He was afraid that he would fail in what he was called to do. Maybe he was afraid about that. So we can kind of speculate, you know, what what were the underlying fears, but we know this, that God saw something within Paul, and what he saw was fear. And so he addresses the deeper, more fundamental need. Have you ever felt afraid of doing something which you knew God was calling you to do? Have you ever felt afraid of doing what you knew you were supposed to do? Like you knew this is the right way, but it was still scary, still fearful. I'd like to share two examples, uh, one personal and one from recent events. Um, First personal. So when my wife and I decided to leave LA, um, this is about like 10 years ago, um, I was serving at a church there and we were kind of just sensing that God was leading us to do something different. And so eventually, um, we uh, had the opportunity to move back to Texas, to Austin, and to join staff as the area directors for InterVarsity. And it was kind of like everything just aligned. The doors opened at the right time. We were both accepted. Um, and it was, it was just it really felt like a God thing, that God was calling us back to Texas to um, serve the campus and to serve the university. We had, we had a vision for this. We were really excited about being able to serve together. But there was something we were afraid of. And it was the prospect of needing to raise support. So um, at 
all InterVarsity staff workers have to raise support. So all the ministry expenses, you know, insurance, salary, all that, you have to ask people to support your ministry and to join your support team. Um, for us, between the two of us and given the campus that we were serving, we had to raise close to $100,000. That was like a huge, huge number. And I remember being really afraid of like, what's my dad gonna think? It was already like a huge journey for him to support me like going into ministry and becoming a pastor. But at least like as a pastor, like the church sort of like, you know, pays you whatever. But this now like I would be having to beg <laughs> in their viewpoint, right? And I just remember like, man, like what if we like say yes to this and we don't raise support and we're not able to get on campus? And there was a lot, a lot of fears. And yet we knew that God had called us. We knew that God had called us, but it didn't change the fears that we had. A second example, you guys may recognize this man, Dr. Lee Wen Liang. He's known as the kind of coronavirus whistleblower. Uh, he was a doctor who passed away this past, um, this past month, actually, who was serving in Wuhan. And he, he was one of the first to kind of recognize that there's something else going on here, and people need to know about it. And of course, in a Chinese, in a communist government, this kind of thing, you don't, you don't just say this kind of stuff. And so at great peril to himself, he took the step to say, you know what? The right thing to do is to say something. I need to alert people. And then he faced, you know, incredible blowback, right? Fortunately, as, you know, public pressure mounted, you know, the government kind of reversed course, and he's kind of um, now seen as a hero, there's actually been some speculation that um, Dr. Wenling was actually a Christian. I haven't been able to verify that, but either way, either way, what this man did and the way he served others and the way that he spoke up even when it was uh, risky, even when there was threat to himself, is an example of someone doing what they felt they were supposed to do, what they were called to do even, even if it was something to be afraid of. When I think about this example and my own personal example and the examples of many of y'all in this community, the question becomes, what does God have to say to us? What does God have to say to us when we know we are called to do something and yet our hearts are gripped by fear? Well, God's message is consistent, it's simple, and it's powerful. His message is, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. God tells Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And if God just left it at that, that would be like really unsatisfying, wouldn't it be? It'd be kind of like, like, the, 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 like uh, the emotionally clumsy dad whose like sobbing child comes to them crying and then they're just like, hey, don't cry, <laughs> right? That'd be like just not helpful at all. So notice what God says to Paul. He says, don't be afraid. And then he offers to Paul both a promise and a provision. He offers a promise and a provision. The promise is, don't be afraid because I am with you. I am with you. 
what does that mean? You know, we could take that phrase as like a nicety, as like a cliche, it's just like, you know, it's like a nice sounding thing, oh, God's with me, great. Well, what does that actually mean? God was saying, I'm actually with you. Like, I'm literally with you. No matter what you go through, I am literally with you. And it begs the question, how does an invisible, immortal being who lives outside of space and time be with us? We understand that God is with us through the real and actual presence of the Holy Spirit. And that when we place our faith in Jesus, Jesus places his spirit in us. Jesus spoke about sending us the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And this is what he meant when, it said, when he said, it's actually to your advantage that I leave. Because while I am on earth, I am bound by a physical human body. But when I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And this spirit will be in and with everyone who calls on my name. That is the advantage. Now every one of us who claim Christ, who place our faith in Christ, have the assurance that the Spirit of God is actually with us. Ephesians talks about how the Spirit seals us at the moment of faith. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When we place our trust in Christ, Jesus seals us with the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, God is with us always. And so his message is, don't be afraid. I am with you. When you are in prison, I am actually with you. When you are sick and when you are hurting and when you are afraid, I am with you. When you have been abandoned, when you are all alone, when you feel like your friends have betrayed you, know this, I am still with you. That was his message to Paul. I think that is his message to us as the church. You know, when we uh, stepped out in faith with fear close in, at hand, it was amazing to see over and over again how God met us within that fear. So as we began this long process of fundraising, it was just, um, you know, I expected most people would say no, it would be awkward. But actually, to the contrary, people that we didn't even know, they would hear that we were raising support, and they'd be like, hey, you know what? God put it in my heart. I want to support you $100 a month. Right? We would just be like, whoa, that's amazing. And this happened over and over and over again. Right? I know this is not every InterVarsity staff worker's story, but it is our story. <coughs> and through it, we saw God's provision. And so that's the second thing I want to say, is that God says to Paul, don't be afraid. He gives him a promise, and then he gives him a provision. Uh, he says to Paul, no one is going to harm you because I have many people in the city there are people who I've kind of worked behind the scenes who will be there to support you, to walk with you, to pick you up when you fall down, 
right? People like Priscilla and Aquila who are there because there was a racist emperor who decided to kick out all the Jewish people. But I was working in that, right? Do you see that? And now they're going to partner with you and they're going to help you spread this message. And I'm going to be working in people who are Jewish and non-Jewish and they're going to receive you, right? They're going to let you live in their home, right? And this is, this is how God provided for Paul in the midst of this fear. God has a promise and a provision for us. I want to finish the story. This is what happens. So Paul <laughs> stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Now, when uh, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. So this man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. All right, so Paul had been in Corinth for a year, uh, and then so these the Jewish people who oppose them, they're still ticked off. They, like, they, they get this crowd together, and they, they bring Paul before, like, the government, right? Uh, now, so just as Paul was about to defend himself, Galileo said to them, all right, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Okay, now look what happens. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Galileo showed no concern whatever. All right, that's not funny, but it is kind of funny, all right? Sosthenes is, who's Sosthenes? But for whatever reason, he's like the wrong place at the wrong time. Because this crowd is angry, because they are afraid, and they weren't able to get what they wanted, what did they decide to do? They beat Sosthenes up, all right? And I think this illustrates a really, really interesting thing that happens over and over and over again. When people are afraid and they don't learn to become aware of their fear and deal with that fear in a constructive way, that fear has to go somewhere. And inevitably, it ends up leaking on other people. It ends up leaking on our children or our spouse, maybe the person we supervise. Maybe it becomes, you know, Maybe the boss becomes like the scapegoat. Maybe it becomes our neighbor. Maybe it becomes the other, right? That person who looks different from us that we kind of already don't like, and then all of a sudden, boom, let's go after them. And so we need to find constructive ways to address our fears, right? Otherwise, they will leak out and they'll hurt others. There's a Facebook post that is kind of going viral right now. Um, it was written by a doctor who's an infectious disease specialist named Dr. Abdu Shakarwi. Okay, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, and he admits that he's afraid, but it's not what you might think. I wanted to read an excerpt because it resonated with me a lot. He said, I am not scared of COVID-19. I am concerned about the implications of a novel infectious agent that has spread the world over and continues to find new footholds in different soil. I am rightly concerned for the welfare of those who are elderly, in frail health, or are disenfranchised, who stand to suffer mostly and disproportionately at the hands of this new scourge. But I am not scared of COVID-19. What I am scared about is the loss of reason and wave of fear that has induced the masses of society into a spellbinding spiral of panic, stockpiling obscene quantities of anything that could fill a bomb shelter adequately in a post-apocalyptic world. 
I am scared of the N95 masks that are stolen from hospitals and urgent care clinics where they are actually needed for frontline healthcare providers and instead are being donned in airports, malls, and coffee lounges, perpetuating even more fear and suspicion of others. I am scared that our hospitals will be overwhelmed with anyone who thinks they probably don't have it but may as well get checked out no matter what because you just never know. And that those with heart failure, emphysema, pneumonia, and strokes will pay the price for overfilled ER waiting rooms with only so many doctors and nurses to assess. Man, when I read that, I was like, that, that resonated a lot. And apparently it's resonated with a lot of people in our country because this has been shared like over 700,000 times the last time I checked. But suffice it to say, I don't think it's an understatement to say that we are living in an age of fear. And the question, right, the circumstances that we face as people of God is the same. All right? It doesn't matter what religion we are, what gender, what, whatever class we are. We, we face these same fears. And the question is, how are we as the people of God going to respond in the face of fear? I think, Josh, you posed that question as well. Are we going to be people who know that our narratives and our stories are different? Because the God of the universe actually gave his very life to us, died on the cross for us, died the death we deserve, rose again in victory and said, you know what, I've actually overcome sin and death. You don't have to be afraid. What difference will that message make in us? What difference will that make in the fear that surrounds us? And so the question I want us to, to, to reflect on what does it mean to you when God says, don't be afraid? I am with you. Where are the places of fear that you have that you need to receive this message, this basic, powerful truth? And what difference would it make as we live in a world where there is so much fear? What difference will this, you know, because maybe you're like, I, I'm not that afraid right now. I feel fine. Well, I guarantee you there are people around you who are really afraid. And how will you be the good news to this world? How will you and I be the presence of Christ, the presence of his peace and provision amidst so much fear? That's our question. So let's pray. Let's pray. I want to close in a word of prayer and then invite us to pray as a community. Lord, I thank you that your message to us is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For I am with you. God, I pray that you would speak that powerful good news into the places of our hearts, our minds, and our lives right now where we feel gripped by fear. And we just confess that to you. We know we shouldn't be afraid, but we're still afraid. I'm still afraid, God. I'm afraid for my in-laws. I'm afraid for my parents. I'm afraid for my kids. I'm afraid, Lord, and I need to know. I need to be reminded of who you are who you are and who you are to me and who you are for us as your people. I 
pray that you would help us, Lord, to be people who would push back the fear, not with an arrogant self-confidence or self-righteousness, but in a deeply grounded, humble faith. So Lord, lead us and teach us to pray. We pray this together. Amen. So what I want to invite us to do is to get into small groups, uh, just four or five people around you. And we're going to take some time to pray for the remaining about eight or ten minutes of our worship gathering. Um, uh, I, I would like to actually encourage um, um, greater participation. And by that I mean... Um, just let's, let's offer sentence prayers. It's like, so it's just short prayers. And that way, multiple people in your group can pray if they so choose, right? And if there's silence, then feel free to offer another sentence prayer. But that way, um, you know, more people get a chance to pray and just to offer their thoughts, their fears, their prayers of faith to God, right? I think that will be uh, more encouraging and beneficial for us this morning. And um, I want us, we're going to have kind of three movements of a few minutes each, right? And so... Um, we'll begin with gratitude and thanksgiving because we need to remember to whom we pray, right? Otherwise, it's easy just to become kind of anxious and crazy. We need to remember and be grounded. To whom are we praying, right? And then so after each movement, I'll simply say amen and then give us the next prompt, okay? So um, go ahead and you know, circle up in groups of uh, maybe four or five. Let's make sure everyone's included or at least has an opportunity to join a group, okay? So just be aware of those who are sitting around you. Go ahead and pray. Uh, Let's say short sentence prayers. Let's listen to one another. Let's pray as the Spirit leads us. Two, I want to invite us to pray for the coronavirus outbreak, right? To pray for the most vulnerable, the elderly, for healthcare workers who are on their front line, risking their lives, for government and civic leaders to make wise decisions. So let's, let's pray for that.
finally, let's pray against fear. Where else do you sense fear? In yourself, in others, or in the world? Let's pray for God's peace, for his freedom, and his protection. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this morning. We offer these prayers to you. The ones that we've been able to articulate as well as the ones that remain hidden in our hearts, God, thank you that you hear, you know them, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us to be people who know you, God, more deeply, who know and whose knowledge that you are with us changes everything. So thank you, God, for your word to Paul all those years ago and your word to us today. God, may your kingdom come on earth. May your will be done as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray.